Welcome back to the Better Way podcast brought to you by RNG Insights Lab. This is a curiosity-driven podcast where we ask, there has to be a better way, right? There just has to be. I'm Zach Casalia, the co-founder of RNG Insights Lab, and I'm joined today, as always, by my friend and partner in crime, Hui Chen. Hi, Hui. Hello, everyone. It's wonderful to be here again, and I'm very excited that we have a guest here today uh, who's someone for whom I have a tremendous amount of respect and admiration. So we're very happy to have Katie Chu, the Vice President and Chief Counsel of Global Investigations at GE, joining us today. Welcome, Katie. It's nice to be here. Thank you. So, Katie, we're going to start off by asking you to tell us about yourself. Uh, tell us who you are and uh, about your professional journey. Let me start with my professional career, and then we can take it from there. Um, after college, uh, I went to law school. And after law school, I worked in a large law firm, Davis Polk & Wardwell, in New York for a couple of years. And then a friend of mine at the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York called me up, someone I'd worked with a great deal while at the firm, and said, what are you doing there? And I said, you know what I'm doing here. And I said, I'm reviewing documents. It's discovery time. And he said, uh, you should apply to the U.S. Attorney's Office. And I said, what's that? And he went on to tell me that it was the federal prosecutor's office in the District of Manhattan and Westchester, et cetera. And off I went, I applied, and I was lucky, lucky enough to get the job and stayed there for over a decade. What was it that drew you from law firm life to being a prosecutor? You know, it was just a leap of faith. I hate to say that in the sense that you think there's kind of a charted path or that I would have a charted path. I literally just adored this lawyer and trusted his judgment so much. In fact, he is someone I consider a big mentor. I didn't really know anything about it. I didn't have any lawyers in my family, and I certainly didn't know any former prosecutors or current prosecutors, but he was having a lot of fun. And so I thought, why not? So I applied, um, really out of a position of ignorance. That's great. And you stayed for over a decade. I did. I did. I did the traditional general crimes and then move on to higher units, um, ultimately focusing on white collar types of crimes, but initially doing drugs, guns, smaller cases too. And uh, after that became a supervisor and a deputy chief in the criminal division and then moved on to um, uh, to GE after that. And I've been at GE now for almost 20 years. So um, three jobs altogether only. So in GE, you have focused on investigation from the beginning? Yes, I was hired into the litigation department and have worked on investigations the entirety of my tenure. In the beginning, the litigation department had two former prosecutors. I was one. I was backfilling, if you will, someone who'd left recently. And uh, since then, have grown my career there and done more. Very tied to the compliance organization, given that what I work on uh, is typically uh, going to lead to potential compliance improvements and the like. And certainly discussions about whether there are broader issues to tackle or at least consider and evaluate. And um, I've spent 20 years doing that. I think one of the things that a lot of our listeners are probably interested in, especially the in-house folks, is how the organization at GA is set up. So are legal and compliance part of the same organization or are they actually part of two separate organizations with their own respective leaders? 
Well, they are separate, but that's been an evolution over time. Uh, they both report into the legal organization and up to our general counsel. But back in the day when I first started, one individual did both investigations and compliance. Then that led to the hiring of a compliance leader so that that role and that function started to develop within GE. Uh, the businesses themselves also started to hire their own compliance leaders. And over time, it's really become very distinct organizations, but working closely together in tandem and reporting into a general counsel. You've spent 20 years doing investigations at GE. Um, and, and I would tell you, I have heard at least one prosecutor in the, in the, in the DOJ tell me that if they could work under you to learn how to do investigations, they would. They would do it without pay, um, they said. Um, wow. So this is, uh, so, you know, you're you're like the master of investigations. And, and I have also found that investigations is one of those things that's very difficult to teach in a, in a classroom or workshop type of setting because it's so fact-specific. It's so... Um, sort of nuance driven. So how do you train investigators? Oh, I love to do this. So so thank you for the question. So I use a hypothetical. I don't train per se. I just say, so imagine somebody comes up to you, you're in a big meeting and someone comes up to you and says, I need to talk to you. I know something really has happened that is non-compliant or some such intro. So you know, there's a compliance concern. What do you do? And I will be training people who are not only lawyers, but also non-lawyers, perhaps members of the audit staff. And that's the first question out of the gate. What do you do? Do you sit down with that person immediately? Do you try to get someone to come with you? Do you call outside counsel? What do you do? And when we start iterating off of that hypothetical, we get to some interesting places. I'll be then pointing out along the way things to consider. Um, I think there's a tendency with investigations to think, for something significant that you immediately call outside counsel. So I'll ask the question, well, what if there's nothing there? What if it's a frivolous concern? How do you evaluate whether it's frivolous or potentially has legs underneath it? Even then, when is the right time to call an outside counsel? Who are you notifying in the company before you do that? Do you have the authority to do that? Um, when do you escalate? When do you set off an alarm bell? When do you not? Because in the end, to your point, Hui, and I completely agree with it, each matter is different and a, a fact can tip it in a different direction, in a different tangent. So you think of the boy cried wolf too many times, right? You can't just react that way. But if you also just journey on and treat it like your many other matters and or, you know, you just take it on yourself, then perhaps you're not doing the company justice either because perhaps you should be telling other people. And if so, whom? And what about the attorney-client privilege that is so critical to understand in evaluating at the outset what might be coming your way, how to look at it, how to examine it, how to resource it, who to elevate to if you're going to elevate it to. Is it your boss? Is it the business's general counsel? Is it corporate HQ? Is it senior management? Is it up to the audit committee? When do you make those decisions and why? So critical to understand is why. And then teaching those who are not lawyers, or even if you're a lawyer, you may not be that familiar with the attorney-client privilege. We're very global. So our concept of the attorney-client privilege is going to be very different from those abroad. In many countries, as you know, the privilege does not apply to in-house counsel. So being able to um, 
educate people during the process of teasing out a hypothetical is the way I do it. And it's also great fun because there's such energy in the room and it causes people to think as we're talking. Because if you just train, at least in my mind, there's a tendency to kind of tune out if you're just listening. And so this is a way to draw people in into really what I call the classroom experience and get to the place. And then when someone makes a comment, being able to ask further questions or make other observations that either um, lead to even fuller discussion of the topic or Bolton will get back to where I want to go. But we'll try to cover many things in the course of, of teasing out a hypo. Like, for example, how do you evaluate whether that person has something or not? I, I, I started with that. Um, how detailed are they in what they say? Is it firsthand? Is it hearsay that they you know, convey information to you? Do they have documents? Do they not? Does it raise a safety concern? Immediately, if it's a safety concern, what do you do with that versus something else? There may be something very major, but it's not going to raise a safety concern. What do you do with that? All of that causes kind of the juices in your mind to think um, and to and to move. And what I want to see is people taking those inputs and running with them and thinking like and getting the light bulb, like, aha, that's a good point. What would I do with that? And why would I do that? And by the end, we, we have a great time. It's such a fun thing to do. Can you give us a, a couple of examples of how data is being used and the kinds of data that you find to be most valuable from an investigative perspective? Yeah, I'll just I'll just give one example that comes to mind. Let's say that I have a concern about uh, a trade controls violation. And you're wondering, like, how could this be something we're just learning about now? Okay, let's say it happened back in, you know, five years ago. Have there been more instances of it? And even more importantly, um, let's say that your the concern uh, comes to your attention because someone has come in to say, you got to address this. Then I'm going to look at all our ombuds data and figure out how many times, if ever, has it been raised before? By whom? When? Who addressed it? What were the conclusions? Were remediations put in place? That history is critical to understanding why we are where we are today. And you know, we get thousands of ombuds concerns every year. We're proud of that because that shows we have what we call an open reporting system where people believe in the system and raise concerns. But of course, you have to address those concerns. So what happened to those concerns? So theoretically, hypothetically, let's say it a matter and it turns out there were 50 concerns like that raised in the past. Why? How could that be? How is it? Is, why is it now? And the, let's say the person coming in is very emotional because they feel like this concern has not been addressed when it should have. Probably right. What happened to those concerns? Were they squelched? Were they mishandled? Did people not understand them? That's my journey to figure out not only what's happened here in this fact pattern, but why did it happen? How could it have happened in a, in a company like ours? And to see what we can do to better improve to make sure those kind of things are escalated. Being able to pull that data out, look at that historically, vis-a-vis -vis the one party you're looking at, but also more systemically. Um, what has gone here with this particular business in the past? Are there gaps here we need to address? Um, uh, likewise, being able to slice seniority levels of people who may or may not have had concerns before or have had issues before, culture surveys, things like that are a goldmine when it comes to doing an investigation because you want to understand the behavior. Uh, to me, investigations is not trying to figure out like the whodunit aspect of it. It's the, how did it happen? And more often than not, it humanizes it because then you understand the broader, fuller context in which this particular circumstance arose. When you have the broader context, then you can put it in the proper context and explain that and then fix it, address it, whatever it may be. Um, 
I think that is a way to fully, more fully understand rather than just the the microscope going directly into the, the one and only fact that you have. I'm picking up on what I feel like must be one of your better ways, which is just having the humility to not just have all of the answers because you're just framing so many. It's it's about asking questions. You're asking so many questions, even as we're having this discussion. It's it's well, why did this happen? What does this say? What did that say when you were explaining the way that you train? It's just a series of questions, and I mean that's got to be one of the characteristics of a really effective investigator is we're looking to get to an answer, but we're going to ask a whole lot of questions to get there. Yeah, thank you. Like I, I've said this before, even in my trainings, I view investigations and what we find is a humanizing experience, yeah. which is to not be judgmental, uh, but to find out what happened and why and how. And more often than not, um, by humanizing that way, because you're you always have to put yourself in that other person's shoes is fundamental to doing investigations. And how did, how did that person do that? Why did they do that? More often than not, you understand and see that it's not because they were coming from a bad place in their heart or intentionally. It's often because they didn't know or they didn't appreciate or they're under enormous pressure and didn't know which path to follow. Like we never say, oh, because your manager told you to do this, it's okay. That's never true if you're really going to actually violate the law or violate a rule. On the other hand, if you're in an environment where there's so many things to do, there's so much time pressure, you know, perhaps the people who usually handle that are not there at the time. They're off on some other crisis. So you're doing the best you can juggling eight things. Well, of the eight, we're usually only at three. That means some are not going to get the attention they need. And maybe you don't have the expertise to understand it. Once you appreciate that context, it has a humanizing effect, not to excuse the behavior because there's a miss, but to understand the why. And it is so important for internal consumption purposes, for process improvement purposes, but also if you were to go to the government to explain that and, and explain that um, transparently, thoroughly, accurately, because I think people need to understand that in order to make it a proper evaluation. Indeed. And, you know, we talk about the why, talk about the root cause analysis. I want to use that as sort of a transition to talk a little bit more about your views of compliance and the remediation, the fixing of it all that comes at the end of an investigation. Because you know, we've talked before, and, and one of the things that we do a lot in our work is try to make sure that we're not fixing for the thing that's right there at the surface that seems really obvious and easy, the contributory factor, but that we really are trying to fix the root cause, that we're asking enough why questions about why this happened to make sure that whatever happens on the compliance side, forward-looking, proactive to try to fix this is actually fixing the thing that needs fixing. So talk to us a little bit about your process there. Well, absolutely critical to make sure that um, remedial measures, process improvements, discipline, if needed, is carried out. So my vision is always not only what happened in addressing this particular matter, but also how do we keep it from happening again? So that goes to root cause. Uh, that goes to um, strengthening or improving processes. It may mean more resources. It may be bringing more domain. It may be changing systems entirely. Uh, and then the th throughput is so critical because if you don't have that, to your point, Zach, you're going to have the problem again. So most people tend to pay attention to that. Um, I have not seen an instance myself of matters I've had where they haven't followed through on what needs to happen. What I always like to think about is you can't have commercial success without compliance. You might have short-term gain, but then you're going to have long-term loss. 
And that always has an audience, a GE. We're looking for sustained business success, not once in a while and then way back, you know, uh, you know, losing. Um, we've seen too many companies do that, right? And those lessons are very much learned by a company like ours. So I, I find that that is as important um, as anything out, coming out of investigation. I think one of one of the things that that I talk about with Way a lot, my at times frustration with the discipline of compliance, and that frustration in part comes from you know uh, th this instinct to say, well, let's train more, or this instinct to say, let's revise our policies and reissue them, or this instinct to say, well, let's just have everyone certified to something. Um, what are some of the better ways that you've seen around compliance where we're getting past? these kind of obvious things, these things that at times are maybe worth as much as the kind of value of the paper that they're printed on and really getting to the core of, you know, shaping a culture of integrity. Yeah, look, you know, I, I love to talk about this because it's so true. Um, training is overrated, but I wanna make sure I clarify what I mean by that. It is foundational. You cannot have a program where you don't train, right? Education is critical, Agreed. but education is ephemeral, right? I can train tomorrow or you can train tomorrow on antitrust, on trade controls, on the FCP, on whatever, right? And you're doing it broadly across perhaps your entire employee base. Well, they're not dealing with that every day and they're not going to remember it in three months time. So your ethics training, your compliance training only can get you so far, right? You need processes that are embedded operationally in the business itself um, so that, for example, if it's improper to spend a certain amount of money on a government official's meal or improper to invite one at all, then have a system and a control in your system such that your accounts payable will not let you pay for that, right? I mean, there are some things that you just think of as, as steps that are embedded in the system to catch someone who may forget, right? It's not even I'm saying that it's because people are trying to get around the rules. They just may forget. I mean, they're Let's say it's a, a, a business that almost never deals with government officials. Their, their product line never goes to government customers. And so they treat it like a commercial customer. And then lo and behold, oh, yeah, way back when, I forgot, you're not supposed to do this. So being able to catch that, so your training, but also making sure your systems work, I think is absolutely critical. Um, so that's, that's, that's one thing. In terms of culture, um, so much is about leadership and mm. um I am a firm believer that if your leadership does um, speak about it, talk about it, do it, walk the talk, if you will, I know that's an overused phrase too, it is so critical. If it's important to your leader, it's important to you. There are so many things you have to do in a day job, but you watch your leader. And then I hate to say it, but I think culture is generational. I mean, I, I had an interesting conversation with someone once about how long do you think it, do you think it takes for um, things to change. Once you have new policies and new processes and training and whatnot for a business that has had problems in the past, how long do you think it takes for people to understand it? And the answer I got was six months. And I said, no, 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 no. Yeah. It's gonna take a long, long time. Because if you think about it, if you have a global company and you have employees that are eight rungs down, you know working on oil rigs or, you know, out, you know, uh, you know, uh, servicing, you know, engines or whatever, I mean, at every level, you know, and they're so far away from the U.S., how are they going to understand this, right? How are they going to appreciate the importance of this to the mothership, which means if it's a mothership, it's the entire company. 
you can't turn the ship around that quickly. So again, having an appreciation for how complicated it is for people to understand newness of it, um, the the actual standards that need to be now met, the fact that it's written doesn't mean it soaks into my brain and I understand it. Uh, it doesn't mean that I appreciate what that means practically in my day-to-day job or even my month-to-month, you know, experiences that might, you know, invoke that. Uh, that takes time. And um, so I, I'm i blessed by being at a company where long before me and long after me, it has been part of the culture uh, for decades um, of having business compliant procedures and uh, success built on compliant practices and that culture, the importance of that being conveyed to newcomers is just part of our DNA. And for people to appreciate that they they carry the reputation of G on their shoulders is so important. And I think it does make people rise up. I want to follow up on this theme about how you create this culture throughout such a large company as, as GE. The first time I met you, you told me about the corporate audit program. And you said it with such enthusiasm that um, I started telling the story to other people. So um, tell tell us, uh, tell our listeners about Corporate Audit Program and why you think it's uh, such a powerful way to shape culture. It was, and perhaps unlike many other companies, a career accelerator at GE, highly competitive to get in. Um, the best and the brightest from corporate audit staff would go on to become CEOs, CFOs, CMOs, just very, very prominent positions throughout the company. The respect that they commanded within the company was extraordinary. And these are young people who started corporate audit staff. So already the talent that got hired into our audit staff was, in my view, phenomenal. Incredibly bright, incredibly capable uh, and young. They were really a secret weapon when it came to investigations, more in terms of, I would say, time, because investigations are time pressured. And the time efficiencies of corporate audits act to get to this broader understanding of context, of data, of um, beyond just the one particular matter. Of course, it would help me understand the one particular matter, but that broader context was critical to being able to understand more broadly what's going on at GE and what may or may not be fixed more broadly. Just phenomenal. On top of that, Corporate Audit Stat's mission when it was created was not only to conduct audits, and they did compliance audits as well as finance audits, uh, but equally important focus on um, process improvements. In other words, it wasn't audit for audit's sake. It was in order to help the company find better ways, to use your phrase. And that was really built into the whole ethos of this program. So therefore, any matter, they would always come out with recommendations and they would often be spot on. Do they necessarily come from audit backgrounds or do they come from all kinds of backgrounds? All kinds of backgrounds. A lot of them do have finance backgrounds, but all kinds of backgrounds. And they really prove themselves. They they would go through 360s, I think, pretty much every year. They would be presenting to CEOs of the businesses or, you know, CEO and a CFO of, of GE, um, you know, regularly. And that was part of their their whole development. The whole thing is it's a development program. It's not just you're not just auditing. You're you are in a development program that is, you know, shaped around the audit needs of the company. One of the things that I I think must have been really exciting about that is that whenever we talk about compliance, we talk about investigations, we talk about corporate audit. There's often this like tension between the business and those functions, this view of them being the police. How did that 
dynamic that you described in corporate audit uh, maybe enable did it enable them to actually be more effective with the business and not be viewed as sort of in a negative light because of who they were and kind of the value that they seemingly were bringing. Absolutely. I read this somewhere that, and I believe this to be true, that the the genius behind the creation of this program when it was formed and intended to have this dual purpose was exactly that, which is not to uh, not for audit staff to be viewed as just the police on the block. They're really there to help the business. And um, that was their real, their real purpose was to make sure that in the course of auditing, they then were helping the business with uh, improvements uh, that the business would embrace. And they didn't have the authority to say, you must do X. They'd be making those recommendations. I mean, geez, highly iterative. It's a very kind of discussion-oriented kind of place. And so businesses would actually pull in corporate audits. So if they were having a problem, they'd bring in the audit staff and say, can you please go look at this and think of a, uh, find a different way for us to do this? I imagine for those who were in audit staff, that was incredibly both empowering but also inspiring, knowing that you're being brought in at senior levels from that business or even from corporate uh, and asked to take on that challenge and that project and you're all of 25 or 28, I think that's a pretty heady experience. And they would attack it with gusto, with with great you know, rigor. All right, Katie, now it's time to get to know you a little bit better. So at the end of every one of our podcast episodes, we have a little questionnaire. We ask everyone the same questions. It's inspired by the Proust questionnaire and Bernard Pivot and James Lipton from Inside the Actor's Studio. Uh, and so Pue and I will rotate back and forth and Pue, I'll let you take question number one. So Katie, the first question is, uh, is a choice of one of two questions. We're going to ask you two questions and you choose to answer one of them. If you could wake up tomorrow, having gained any one quality or ability, what would it be? The other version or the question option number two would be, is there a quality about yourself you're currently working to improve? If so, what? Those are great questions. So I would say that if I could change one quality about myself is I'm a very shy person. And if I could be more gregarious, I think I'd be happier and more successful. But it is who I am. I am a bit of an introvert. Um, I'm, you know, that that is my nature. But I do envy those who are more um, um, extroverts than I am. And so if I could like in a blink of an eye, make a change, that's what I do. I love that. Uh, the next one is also a choice of two questions, either who is your favorite mentor or who do you wish you could be mentored by? Oh, you know, um, I have so many mentors that I think of, and I, I think of mentors as people that I not sponsors per se, but people that I really respect and enjoyed getting advice from. So um, I would say uh, in terms of government, um, certainly uh, Dennis McInerney, who was the head of the fraud section, just a, a tremendous person. And the person who called me uh, about the U.S. Attorney's Office and said, you know, you should apply here. Well, um, great. And, and then uh, Briggs Tobin was another colleague at GE who uh, recently passed away. But like Dennis, just had this uh, joy of life and would always see the best in people and circumstances and the fun. And that causes inspiration like none other, right? If your leader is happy, if they're inspired, it brings people along. And, you know, with Briggs, we would giggle. I mean, he was head of M&A at GE. Um, a lot of M&A has gone on at GE. 
and the stories that both he would tell, but also enjoy and his enjoyment in the moment of matters, high pressured matters were, were like none other. And uh, I just remember every time I'd see him, he'd have this, this smile on his face, this twinkle in his eye, Dennis had the same quality. Uh, those are the two that I think of immediately. Oh, that's wonderful. What is the best job paid or unpaid that you've ever had? My current job. Been wow. a great job. I um, have learned so much. It's funny, you know, I love my job at the U.S. Attorney's Office. Like, it's an amazing job. And talk about fun. I mean, you just have the weirdest things happen when you're a prosecutor that yeah. you have to deal with and immediately, right? So, and also like doing trials and, and the friendships you make in the U.S. Attorney's Office are not are like none other. I mean, they're, they're, they're for life. Um, but I will say that the broadening I've experienced at GE with the kind of work that I've gotten to do, the leadership opportunities I've been given at GE, the exposure I've been given um, has been like none other. And as much as I love being a prosecutor, and I truly did, um, it's very one-dimensional. And having a broader appreciation for private sector experiences, um, the functions within a company, the cross-functionality in order for a company to succeed, to see that, the brilliance of the people at GE, and um, the respect that GE is held in or has been held in, which has enabled me to do my job so much more easily. Uh, and the ability, but also the accountability to maintain that level of quality uh, and humility in the job that I do, to appreciate what we do and what we stand for, uh, but also to advocate for, right? I'm a, I'm a fierce advocate for GE because I so strongly believe in it. It gives me that purpose. I have always felt that purpose um, and that mission. Uh, and without any doubt, felt that GE deserved all my advocacy because I feel so strongly about the company. It's been just a, a world, um, a world-class experience for me. I, I, I really am very grateful for having had the chance. Katie, what is your favorite thing to do? I love to read. I just finished Malcolm X's biography, um, Arising, and um, I'm starting to read some short stories by Flannery O'Connor. I am an avid reader. I actually love fiction. I love to get lost in fiction. I mean, for me, it's really the most transformative experiences to take me out of myself and my 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 life as much as I love my life, but just to have the imagination of fiction that really transports me somewhere else is the best the best thing for me. That's wonderful. Well, not fiction, but we'll be launching a book club soon. So we would love for you to be a part of it. I'd love to do that. That sounds great. Now, next question is, what is your favorite place? My favorite place? Well, I'd probably say Myanmar, Burma. Fascinating, fascinating wow. place and a place that I'll never forget for its beauty and how enchanting it is. And Pagan in particular there. I went there, but easily 20 years ago. In terms of imaginary space, I come back to my reading, which is I love when I can totally lose myself in a book because it's so well-written that I feel transported. What makes you proud? I'm super proud when my team succeeds and knocks that out of the park. I love when I hear from others telling me how great they are and what, great, what a great job they did. Because, of course, I feel that way. But it's different when others who are lauding their work and the value they, they've brought and um, the help that they've rendered is like none other. And, of course, I have three kids. 
So what makes me immensely proud is as they grow up, as they become good adults, right? Learning and becoming well-rounded, giving human beings, that gives me great joy. So we move from the profound to the mundane. What email sign-off do you use most frequently? I just use my name. You know, I it's, it's the one thing that occurs to me when you say that is I don't put my title. I never have. So I always just sign it Katie. I don't want people to be either intimidated by my title or not. So it's a deliberate thing that I just sign my sign my name. What trend in your field is most overrated? So the phrase do more with less is something that I don't believe is such a great phrase if taken to an extreme. There's no doubt that companies are about efficiencies and we're all, we all get more efficient with our jobs and our day jobs over time. But at some point in the legal function and the compliance function, doing more with less becomes a bit illusory and you get too stretched. And so I, um, I caution everybody and myself that at some point you say, enough is enough, you need more help. That's a very fair point. And last question is, what word would you use to describe your day so far? Thought-provoking. Oh, wow. Nice. That's great. I just want everyone to know it's 9.30 in the morning. So she's referring to us when she says yes. that. <laughs> exactly. Katie, thank you so much. Any final words of wisdom to share with our listeners? This has been such a wonderful conversation. I would just say, you know, do what you love and do it well, and you will inspire others. What more can be said? Wonderful. Katie, thank you so much. And thank you all for tuning in to the Better Way podcast and exploring all of these better ways with us. For more information about this or anything else that's happening with RNG Insights Lab, please visit our website at www.ropesgray.com slash RG Insights Lab. You can also subscribe to the series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. And if you have thoughts about what we talked about today, the work the lab does, or just have ideas for better ways we should explore, please don't hesitate to reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening.